Hello and welcome to Who Books That with Harrison Greenbaum. I'm your host, Harrison Greenbaum. Thank you so much for tuning in. We have an incredible episode in store for you. Before we get there, uh, a reminder that this show is presented by the International Brotherhood of Magicians, the IBM. If you are not a member already, join up at magician.org slash join dash the dash IBM slash join. And if you're already a member and you'd like to renew your membership, uh, you can do that at that link below too. The show is every Wednesday at 7 p.m. if you're on the East Coast, 4 p.m. if you're on the West Coast. And it's also available in podcast form at Apple Music, Google Play. It's available through Amazon. It's available anywhere you get your podcast. Go to whobooksat.com for more info. Make sure you leave a review. A five-star review really helps. Uh, th this show is in the top 100 performing arts podcasts in um, at least eight different countries all over the world. Thanks to you guys. Thanks to your support. Uh, so uh, keep it up. Thank you so much. And uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter and Instagram, at Harrison Comedy, pretty easy, at Harrison Comedy, because you're not allowed to use the Star of David emoji, emoji in, in a name. Uh, so it's just at Harrison Comedy. The Jew is implied. All right, uh, guys, thank you so much for tuning in. We have people from mid-Michigan, Kissimmee, Florida. We even have somebody all the way from Iceland. How do you pronounce his name? I, uh, Peter Finn Bajorbida. That, that could be, that could be it. But Peter, PT, Peter, thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. Our featured guest for this evening uh, is spectacular. He is probably the world's leading theatrical illusionist. He designs magic, special effects, illusions for shows you've seen on the West End and Broadway, Matilda, uh, Ghost the Musical, Pippin. Uh, he's consulted with the top magicians in the world, Darren Brown, uh, David Copperfield, David Blaine. He's even been on the children's show, Blue Peter, which uh, I, I hear is an English, a British children's show and not a euphemism for something dirty. It's called Blue Peter. They're all okay with it. We just have to accept it. Uh, he is a phenomenal magic thinker, historian, inventor, and performer. I am so excited to have him here and I am so uh, thrilled and grateful that he's willing to stay up late because he's coming to us from the UK where it's a little bit later than it is here. Make some noise, get excited from your apartment or home. It's Paul Keith, everybody, give it up for him. Well, how you doing? Yeah, I'm very good. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not too bad. It's 11 p.m. here because this week is a weird week because we went back, our clocks went back on Saturday night, Sunday morning and yours don't go back till this weekend. So it's the only time in the year that there's only a four hour time difference between me and New York. Yeah, it's like it's like one magical window where otherwise the show would have been 1 a.m. your time. Yeah, yeah, I think there's a week where it goes the other way. <laughs> well, I am so excited to have you on the show. There's so much to get to. Um, let's start from the beginning. Um, you're, you're, you grew up in the UK. Um, you started doing an act with your sister, Karen, that you entered into the magic circle. Uh, how did how did you rope your sister into your act? Well, it was just by chance, actually, because I, I got interested in magic. I was obviously practicing at home like everyone else does. I think the first thing I did actually was a kid's party for my younger brother, Daniel. And I think Karen was doing like event uh, puppet in that show. And then years later, we just thought it would be a real hoot to put together a, du a double act. And we did it as everyone does in their front room. Uh, my friend Richard McDougall always says when you watch competition acts, you can always tell the size of their front room from how far they put their tables apart. <laughs> and um, so we just did that. And we ended a competition called the um, 
It was the Reading Junior Day, the Home Counties Magical Society, uh, on the day of my 17th birthday. And we, and we really genuinely were totally surprised that we won it. And um, so that's how that started. And she was also the guinea pig in the zigzag that I built at school. <laughs> was it a comfortable one or did you really have to cram in there? I don't think it's ever comfortable, is it? <laughs> Fair. Well, we had Lou Dillies on the show and she I had one of the few uh, sub trunks. Her, her father built it. So we actually cushioned the inside, which sort of uh, set up for failure later on because no other prop she ever had had that level of uh, comfort inside. The Harrison, I remember that sadly the day that I could actually fit into my zigzag and actually do it. I tried, I tried to fit into one person's zigzag just for fun. And I realized that that is a dream I will never be able to realize. My body is not built to be zigzagged. You can get in when it's when the blades aren't in. That's right. Uh, I also you have to smile the whole time. And I don't think I'd be capable of doing that when my body's in those positions. Uh, I think around that time, uh, Sade, the uh, British pop star, was filming her first music video. Um, and I'm going to play a little bit of, of a clip from this, um, this video. Uh, let's see if uh, I can pull it up. Here it is. It's uh, it's really wonderful. She is uh, a great magician, it turns out. Now, she has some very delicate feminine fingers that are making those cards uh, come out of that fan. Uh, what What is happening in there? And, and uh, is that sort of the, the beginning of, of, a, of a break that led to another break that dominoed uh, till now? Led to Blue Peter. Yes. Um, <laughs> basically, my mum was a childhood actress and then she went back into acting in later years. And um, she was in a pop video with the Kinks, with Ray Davis, where she basically, I mean, I have to say, she basically played a whore in a club. Um, <laughs> Sorry, oh, by the way, I just realized uh, a weird transition, but I did find your zigzag. So this is, if for those oh. wondering what it looked like, uh, yeah. this, here it is in all its glory. That's with Prince Edward. That's the Queen's son over there. Oh my God, that's amazing. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I'm sorry, back uh, to prostitutes. Mom, being a supportive <laughs> Jewish mother, she got this part in this Kinks video. She was great, and she had to like kind of try and pick pick up Ray Davis in a in a in the Caviar de Paris. And it was a song called Don't Forget to Dance. And I think when she was going round the film companies to audition, I just had this terrible card printed saying, you know, Paul Keith, Magical Entertainer, or ever, anyone had in those cards in those days. And I think she left some of my cards in the film companies and they got confused and thought she was a magician. So Sade, who was then unknown, was doing this first single from the, her first album, Your Love is King. And they were looking for a female magician to double in. And, um, they got confused. They phoned her up and said, are you a magician? She said, no, my son is. And they spoke to me and I put them onto another female magician who wasn't available. And they got back to me and they said, do you think you could do it in gloves? So I, I went for an audition and they said, it's great. And then the day before they said, oh, we actually need you to do it without gloves. Um, would you be prepared to have your hairs bleached on your arms? Because I- At I this point you'd already gone through puberty. You had like- Oh no, I was, hair, I was, already, I was already, I was 16 at the time, January, 1984 this was and and then the bleach just didn't work so they basically shaved my arms to the elbows and applied nail polish and makeup and i and i doubled in for Sade. but i had such a great time with her and she was such she was genuinely a wonderful person and the band were all very 
supportive of me and they called me like the boy wonder i mean it's just really sweet <laughs> and they all watched me on that blue peter show when i which led which came from that video and um and then of course that single became a massive hit and it was from the album diamond life and Sade used to phone me up at home and say i remember her phoning up and saying we're so excited it's number 75 in the album charts charts <laughs> and of course it went all the way to number one it went to number one in america and then she became an international star but she used to send me uh, Christmas cards and invite me to a pop concert. And that was, I think it was a radical, had a radical effect on me because I, it was, it, I was like, I want to do this. This is, you know, uh, this is the, the thing I wanted to do. And even though I got teased at school a bit for having my arm shaved, as soon as that video started getting on the TV, you know, I, I was suddenly called cool for the first time ever. Through it. Which is a big deal for a, a magic kid at any school. <laughs> No, it was just weird. It was just really lucky. I've been a few times in my life. I feel like there's just been something's happened from a weird timing, you know, and uh, and it was a really lucky break, I guess, because that led on to my first TV jobs. And and also just more than that, it was the taste of that excitement. And they were so nice. And because that was their first, it was pretty much their first time in front of camera, you know, because back then you didn't even video stuff on iPhones. You know, it was all. So they were kind of nervous and I was kind of nervous and we were all, in a way, it was a, a debut. And, and only a few years ago when I was working on a, the car launch thing I did with Dynamo, the music, uh, the composer, he was friends with An Andrew Hale, who was the keyboard player. And we chatted and he said, oh God, we all remember that day. And he got Sade on the phone. And I mean, I haven't heard from her in years and years, but they were just really good people and very supportive. And I think it gave me that boost, you know, to, that that un, unrealistic thing. <laughs> oh, this is always going to be like this, you know. I'm just going to walk into this job, and this is going to happen. But it was, you know, I was really lucky, and um, I remember putting that single on the on the turntable as you did then, and putting the needle on, and hearing it for the first time. I didn't actually like it. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, this is a bit boring. But then, of course, it it uh, and that that single. Um, was followed, I think, as a single by uh, Smooth Operator. Um, but that was still, I think, her highest charting single in the UK. I mean, I think it's also interesting, too, because that gig is sort of, you're hidden in it, right? If, if, if you do your job right, they should never know you're in that music video. They should just think Sade is a fantastic card magician. Uh, and that's, that's a trend in your work, I think, in that the better job you do on these shows, the less like, the less they should see your hand in it. That's right, but I think what was unusual about that is that Sade, when she was interviewed on Radio 1 and stuff like that, she used to talk about me. She was very generous and mentioned me by name. And uh, they, you know, I remember her one, one interview, they said, oh, I hear that this young kid where, you know, had his arm shaved and she's, <laughs> she, was and she was saying, oh, yeah, mine are hairier than his, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and so she was, she was always very generous. But, yeah, mostly you want to be the unseen the, the unseen figure, really, in, in what I do. And let's jump a little bit ahead, because after this, uh, you end up forming a, a, a two-person act, the Zodiac Brothers, with uh, Lawrence Layden. That's right. Um, and that takes you all over. You did uh, television. Uh, how did how did you end up uh, sort of joining forces with another magician? What, what was behind that decision? Well, Lawrence was a local magician. He lived in Ilford, and I lived in Buckingham, which is all kind of East London. And I think... Um, my brother was at a children's party that he was entertaining at, and I kind of met him through that. And Lawrence very early on said, oh, let's team up, let's do a double act. 
and I wasn't interested at all. And I said, oh no, I want to do my own thing. And I did my first summer season in Jersey um, in this venue called the Inn on the Park where you, well, I, I was in the first half of the show. And does Jersey have a different connotation in England? Is, is, or is, is your Jersey like our Jersey? No, it's, it's at Jersey is actually in the Channel Islands. So it's very, it's an island near France. Gotcha. And so it's an English island, but it, um, it's a it was a big holiday destination. So it, it would be more like a very low-grade Caribbean island. Nice. <laughs> so where people went to holiday. So there was tons of, loads of entertainers started there. You know, people like Paul Zanon started in Jersey. And, um, so, yeah, I was, I was working over there. And um, that was, um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was very, very cool to get that, uh, to get that break. To, to go over there. Um, but I was, so I did this, this season over there and then I, I was working with a female assistant and then that, that Christmas she left the, you know, she went off to do, do a dance gig and, um, and Lawrence got onto me again and he was like, would you consider it? And I said, well, okay, I'll do it for three months. And then we, um, you know that great song from Gypsy, You Gotta Have a Gimmick? Well, the thing is that two guys working together and called the Zodiac Brothers, we were memorable. I don't think we were very good, especially at first, but we were memorable. Like if you, if we, we were booked, you remember the two, uh, what was that at? Oh, it was the two guys, the two brothers. It was only one act like where that. where did the Zodiac part come from? Where did, where did that? Well, I think we decided that um, you can be brothers under the Zodiac, like you can be Zodiac Brothers, but we were when we looked alike um, and, um, I used to, I used to, uh, when I look at the pictures now, I nicknamed us the Bar Mitzvah Boys of Magic because I think we were like <laughs> two kind of like, you know, sweet guys that were like doing, and we were doing cruise ships and we were doing these illusions and things and fire at, and we did, did an act that we were trying to outdo each other. And then, um, and it was, I guess it was a cute act. We worked a lot, you know, we worked a lot on ships and we worked in Italian strip clubs where you went on after six strippers, which was actually a classy booking in Italy. And um, that's a whole other story. And and we worked in strange clubs in Brussels and all over in six months in Japan. And then um, that was, it just kind of went, and we, we did new faces, which I guess was the equivalent of a, Britain or America's Got Talent nowadays, which we didn't win. And, uh, but we got on it and that was really good for our show reel and everything. And back then you had like a live orchestra playing the music, like we had a 40 piece orchestra playing the music for our act and stuff. It was very exciting. Um, I also, that, I have, uh, I did some digging. You were also on the Ron Lucas show. I'd like to share a very, just a small taste of the oh, Zodiac good. Brothers. Uh, it's incredible. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the Zodiac Brothers. There is not enough ribbon dancing and matching. I've been saying that for years. You can totally see what happened next. Even if I can tell you, it was meeting Jeff McBride out in Italy 
when we were touring around. And that was amazing because I loved Jeff McBride's app. You know, the mask app had been on the Paul Daniels show. And we were working in Mantua in Italy. And there was a poster saying, Magia, you know, Jeff McBride. I was like, can't be the same guy, surely, from New York. And we, I made various calls. And we, I ended up with Jeff McBride on the end of the phone. He said, and this was 1988 when Jeff was touring it, uh, Italian discos. And, uh, yeah, that was a few years later. But we ended up, this is absolutely, and Jeff will verify this, the only night that we could go and see Jeff performing in a disco, because he was touring Italy, and we were doing six nights a week, and these we're, like, going on after six strippers, was um, we, we'd moved to Florence, and uh, he was up in Desenzano. No, not Desenzano. It was Livigno which was on the Swiss-Italian border, literally in the mountains. And it took us 12 hours to travel there to see his act. And our bus was delayed. And uh, we were terrified that we were going to miss his act. So we called the disco. And we were like, oh, tell Jeff McBride that we're, gonna, we're on our way. We're like 10 minutes late. And we ran in like crazy people. They were like, he pointed to this door. And we opened it. And there's Jeff McBride at that point in the full white makeup when he did the full <laughs> makeup. Um, when he was doing the Hall of Mirrors stuff. And um, and he said, it's cool, guys. You know, I, I held the show for you. And and then we didn't have alarms or anything, and we had to get a bus the next morning that left at 6 in the morning. So we basically hung out overnight with Jeff in this kind of freezing place. And um, and we became friends. We're still still very good friends with Jeff. And that was that, and that had a huge influence on us because we, we were like, we don't want to be these – sweet looking guy doing magic we want something that's that's more dramatic and more you know kind of sinister i guess because his act was quite dark and we loved that firepower the thing from firepower music and we, we were like oh jeff we love your music and he's like oh you can use it and he wrote it on a bit of paper of course it was totally inappropriate but you know <laughs> what's crazy is you know we, we we when we went to japan we were booked on japanese tv with that ninja act and i was like what other, you know, Jews from Ilford, a book, you know, from East London <laughs> with a ninja act from Japanese TV. I think that was like, I don't think that's ever happened before or since, and nor should it, to be perfectly honest. But <laughs> you could have advertised Jeff, yourself as ninjus. Yeah, that's true. But Jeff had signed this poster uh, to me. I'm you, jujitsu. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to get a whole act out of that. <laughs> it's already in there. You know. <laughs> Um, but so Jeff signed this poster to me for he'd been on this show called Fantastico, uh, an Italian program, which he, he was a big hit on. And it was that great picture of him with the big red, like kabuki thing with a big wig. And he was almost like foretelling the future for me because he wrote, Paul, remember, there's always more than magic with his wonderful signature on it. And I still have that poster. And, um, you know, and it was in a way, it was Jeff, I think, had that Im impact on me because the mask act is, is, you know, what other one person act has that kind of dramatic irony, the, 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 the conflict? And he set that up with, on his own with the masks, telling a story of conflict and good and evil and possession. And I think that whole thing had a big impact on me, the theatre of it. And we're going to, I want to get to that. Um, but before we do that, um, your, your fellow Zodiac brother, uh, Lawrence Layden, he's currently in Thailand, but he did send a message and I'd like to play it right now. 
Greetings from Bangkok, and uh, this is your Zodiac brother here. Sorry I can't be with you live. Um, lots of fond memories um, from the Zodiac brothers' time, um, from being blissfully unaware of the uh, clocks changing when we were working a club in Italy, and being an hour late for our performance, um, to working on the Ron Lucas show and performing A New Illusion after just a couple of days from coming off a cruise ship, to actually seeing Siegfried and Roy when we're working in Japan, work their new Vegas show in and then getting the pleasure of spending time with them as well. So lots of amazing um, fond memories, really miss those times. Anyway, hope to uh, be able to meet up soon and lots of love. Wow, that's right. A huge thank you to, to Lawrence Layden. Uh, what happened with the with the clock story? Well, we were we were working in Italy. I'd say we were. It was actually, as I say, I'm not just making it up. I would tell you if it wasn't a classy gig. But we had this variety agent called Martin Nazareth, MPM Entertainment, and he he said the best place to work, one of the best places to work, is in Italy, where you do work these hostess clubs, and they you go, you know, literally it was it was four or five lady performers basically you know classy stripper they all had an act they all had a certain <laughs> thing they always had something going on with the act but they were basically strippers and then you would go on along with maybe one other speciality act and um and we you worked two weeks in each club and there was lots of clubs around northern italy going around and you would only find out where the next club was three days before you know so they'd say well now you're going to bologna or now you're going to Rimini, you know, and um, so we were working, I think, in Bologna, and we just had no idea that the clocks had changed because <laughs> you've got to imagine for younger listeners, you know, before, you know, mobile phones, you know, but I mean, I mean, um, you know, modern iPhones and that sort of thing that informs you of this all the time, that it was actually, and you're in a foreign country, we spoke a bit of Italian, but not much. We we just had no idea. And we always used to get in, you know, religiously an hour and a half before the show. And you had to get in like 45 minutes before, but we, we'd have to set everything up. So one night we walked in and the, the act that was on before us was already on, was on the stage. And um, we were like, this is weird. And then I, I remember the club owner just flipping out. And saying, no lavora questa sera, no lavora questa sera, which basically means you're not working tonight. And then we found out why, you know, that we'd, we'd screwed up with the, with the time difference. <laughs> but we had a few, a few moments like that, you know. But we did travel a lot. And although, you know, it's really not easy being in a double act. It's, it's, um, cause you're like, it's like you're married with kids, but your kids are the act and, you're not really married, you know, you're just, we were just, you know, pals, but we were very, very different as well. And, uh, you know, we were in our early twenties and it was, uh, it, it was amazing when I think about it, the opportunities we had, especially in days like today, you know, when all of that traveling, I mean, I remember working on a, on a charter cruise ship. It was a terrible cruise ship. It was a, a Paratiki line. I think two of their ships sank eventually. <laughs> I think it was one of the ones that the famous story of Julian Russell, the the, the cruise director, um, who was a magician. He was on a ship as a magician, and it sank, and the Magic Circle raised money for him to do his act again. And um, 
And then he eventually did his act, but he ended up becoming a cruise director. And that ship sank as well. <laughs> Julian Russell. If you get on a ship and Julian Russell's working, I don't think you want to be on that cruise. Yeah, it's um, like God is giving him a very bad review. <laughs> yeah, but I remember, anyway, being on this cruise, uh, a Paratiki lines, and it was charter cruise. They didn't tell us any information. And basically, you know, Europe is amazing because especially the islands, you've got like Corsica and Sardinia and Sicily and the Greek islands. They're all very close to each other. And you can almost get to them in half a day. So I remember getting off the boat one day and we had no idea which country we were in. And I had to go into a shop and ask which country we were in. You know, to say, excuse me, um, you have any idea which country we're in? You know, it's just weird. Amazing times, though, really. And and it, it was a very good companionship. You know, it was um, uh, my sister came out to it, to Japan for three months. And as, as Lawrence mentioned, we went to, you know, Siegfried and Roy in Tokyo and had all these adventures. And um, But that was it. Yeah. And then Ron Lucas show was one of the last things we did. We did a week at the castle. And then I kind of applied <laughs> I applied to go to university because I was like, all right, I'm not sure if I, I, I didn't plan to do this for four years. <laughs> right. And then right after you get off the cruise ship, essentially, uh, you start working on the Invisible Man uh, directed by Ken Hill, right? That, that That's right. There's, it, it, it's almost kind of seamless. Yeah, it was weird because I had applied for university and I wonder what would have happened if that hadn't happened. But I used, we used to, I used to, and we both used to do these variety nights at the Theatre Royal Stratford East, and which is famous for a theatre director called Joan Littlewood that people that are interested in theatre would know about her. It's a, a very famous show and movie uh, called Oh, What a Lovely War came out of that theatre. It was a very innovative theatre. So we used to do the variety nights there. And the day after we left that cruise ship, literally the next day, I had a call from Kate Williams, who was... Uh, used to host the variety nights and she said are you available because she knew me from before the double act she said, are you possibly available to do this new ad adaptation of the world's first ever stage production of the invisible man and it was actually the first time in um yeah that was when it went to the west end a couple of years later but it was the first time literally in four and a half years i was free to do it so it was another one of those strange coincidences and um yeah we by the time it went back into the west end a version of that photo went into five national papers and it got so much publicity and we had a publicity genius called Mark Bukowski and uh, he, he, he was a genius at pub, the publicity stunt and he came up with this idea of the Invisible Man fan club <laughs> which was completely fictitious but he did these photo shoots of people lining up to see the show dressed as the Invisible Man including like dogs with bandages around them, dressed as the, you know, visible dog. <laughs> and it was just a very photogenic. That's actually from five years ago, uh, four years ago, I hosted a 25 anniversary party. And I've got to tell you that that is a cake. Wow. That is a cake designed by Annabelle, Annabelle DeVetton-Peterson, who is the most incredible, I think she's called conjurerskitchen.com. And she, she now lives in LA and a genius. I mean, that is a cake. It's all edible. That is wild. <laughs> yeah, that's where that's from. That's from five years ago when I hosted a party at the theatre. Um, but yeah, Invisible Man was, uh, and I was very fortunate to work with Ken Hill. Um, Ken Hill, who people will not have heard of, genuinely did the first musical production of Phantom of the Opera. 
<laughs> um, which was done at Stratford. And then it's actually in the Phantom of the Opera program. So there's no, I'm not going to be sued. You're not going to be sued for this. Um, Lloyd Webber and Cameron McIntosh went to see it, went to see his Phantom of the Opera, which was all set to classical music, but with spoofy lyrics. And they started to work with Ken on, on a musical version of it. And then they parted company. And a couple of years later, Andrew came up with his amazing, but very different style, Phantom, as in, you know, big dramatic theatre. And Ken's was more kind of spoofy, tongue-in-cheek. Um, but Ken was clever enough to take his production to America. And, call, and by this point, Michael Crawford and Sarah Bryan had opened the West End. It was a huge, huge hit. And he took his to America and he called it the original stage musical. <laughs> and it cleaned up. You know, it, it right. sold everywhere. And, and there's, a, there's amazing stories that I can't repeat about the, the kind of fight between the two phantoms. It's an amazing thing. And, uh, but Ken, for the first time in his life, made, made a lot of money from, from touring Phantom in America. And, and I was fortunate enough that that was just before Invisible Man. So we had the budget, a small budget from Stratford East, but when Ken wanted to do something, he'd say, look, I can put a bit of extra money in. So Ken supported it a bit more because it, it was only a regional rep theatre and it didn't have, you know, our budget was slashed on that first one. I mean, I remember the designer, whose name was Robin Don, he, he, uh, he changed his name on the poster to Agnes Dewhurst <laughs> after his set was cut. Because in England, Dewhurst is a very famous butcher. Gotcha. <laughs> nice. And so it was this funny thing, and we almost didn't finish the tech. And then, but it was it was amazing. And of course, the big moment in it that everyone remembers was the um, was the unmasking of the Invisible Man. He plays the whole. You know, this is one of the things about drama: is the whole thing is like, who is this man? This mysterious stranger is bandaged. And at the end, he he says, "I'm going to show you." who I am. I'm going to show you what, what I am. And he, he takes his bandage, you know, he takes his hat off and he goes here and he takes his glasses off. He goes here and he goes, and here and he takes the, the bandages off and one winds it and he says, now are you satisfied? And he just takes a puff on his cigarette without the head. And, um, that, you know, used to bring the house down and Mrs. Hall, the very miserable Cockney landlady, she goes, Oh my God, he ain't got no head. <laughs> Well, let's play. Uh, let's go a little clip from that so people can uh, experience it themselves. After he totally disrobes, and I think you might be showing something from that section. Yes. He's running around invisibly, and they don't know where he is. Yeah, I have, I have both clips. So here is the, uh, the oh, yeah. pivotal unmasking. Uh, and then here is another special effect with that uh, dower lady. <laughs> Both of them incredible in different ways. Always caused a titter, they say. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, it was always hard to film that stuff, especially back there. You're talking that footage on that second one is is back from the original 1991 production, actually. And, um, you know, probably an unusual use of the spirit hand. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> 
But like, I, I think what's, so I, you, you do Invisible Man, that comes right off of the, the cruise ships, essentially. Yeah. How many shows into uh, consulting uh, did you realize this was my career? Well, I know, I still don't realize that. Uh, <laughs> I don't really, I, what happened was just things, the Invisible Man was, it, worked, it was done at Stratford and then it went into the West End. And I think there was a lot of focus on the effects and I didn't really realize how small the industry was then. In fact, when it opened at Stratford East, in you know Stratford East London, I, I had no idea that national critics would be in. And I remember the, the night opened, a friend of mine called me around, around midnight. said, have you seen the Times newspaper? I said, what do you mean? He said, the Times review. I said, what, what, the Times were in? He said, oh yeah. And literally half the review is talking about my work in it. And, and one review after the other was like that. And I've got to say, all credit to Ken Hill, well, not all credit to Ken Hill, but Ken had this cavalier way of working. He never believed that unmasking was going to work. But he, rather than undermine my idea, he said, oh, well, I don't think it's going to work. But I've got another idea anyway. So if that one doesn't work, I've got another thing up my sleeve. And he kind of empowered me to get on with it. He was a grumpy sod. He never, <laughs> very, uh, one of his actors said, very stinting when it came to praise, never praise you. And um, would, I mean, and he hated, if an actor ruined one of his jokes, he would just <laughs> cut the line. He'd cut the line. And I'd say, Kent, what happened to that line? He goes, oh, I'll put it in when we get an actor. <laughs> Nice. It's like very brutal. And I remember one time during the previews, he just tapped me on the shoulder. He goes, you're working hard, mate. And that was about the best, the biggest compliment I ever got from Ken. And you knew if he didn't complain that you were doing all right. But um, I, I went into that show with complete ignorance, actually, in that uh, all I did was do full out methods. Right. You I know, think I there was 48 that. effects, individual effects yeah, in that show. Much. But I didn't, I didn't know about how to make them bad for theatre. You know what I mean? I didn't, because I, <laughs> I devoted five months to it. And I'll give you an example. We did a floating knife, um, which I remember Charlie, because Re Charlie Reynolds came in with the Pendragons. It was so weird. Like all these magicians started coming in, seeing the Pendragons in the Stratford Bar, you know, where they, they were over to be like the best of magic for John Fisher, which was also uh, who, who uh, oh yeah, this, that predates it. That's when I was 17 in Vegas. And that's in Lance Burton's, probably his first home in Vegas when he was <laughs> doing the Folly Bergere. Was it the Folly Bergere he was in? Uh, yes, was. Yeah. And if you, if you, if you, Pam, I think you can see his award on the wall there. But, and uh, the Pendragons were also performing in City Lights. This is when Vegas was full of variety acts. And we managed to hang out and they were super hospitable. That was, that was a couple of years before I was there with my brother Mark. And, um, yeah, so so uh, I remember being at being at Stratford, and we did we, we did this floating knife, and this is just a good example of theatre and magic. I wanted to do this this almost version of the the Ralph Adams dancing handkerchief set up, very you know, which was fairly complicated with threads across the stage and all this stuff, and it was like, how do we set this up? And they had to go right the way across where the door of the pub was, so the entire cast had to enter over the threads. And like, how do you do that night after night? Well, we we figured out that we could have a doormat in the pub. So, uh, and the scene before, Mrs. Hall is cutting a cake. 
So she cuts a cake and Millie, who's like the really slightly dim, you know, sidekick, because uh, they're all horrible characters in The Invisible Man, by the way. They're all, <laughs> apart from The Invisible Man himself, um, even in the in the book, they're all like stereotype, horrible, kind of racist, nasty sort of types, actually. So you've got, they are all types, they're sort of stereotype. So you've got Millie who's licking the bread knife and she's just licking, and then she goes round and she, she, I remember there was a, a tea towel and she just picks up the tea towel and starts mopping the piano and she's actually switched it for the knife that's rigged. And what the cool thing was, was that the whole cast come in, the last one is the, the tramp, Thomas Marvel, and he's always shabby and Mrs. Hall says, don't come in here in your muddy boots. And she picks up the doormat and shakes it and drops it back again. And that was that released the threads. So and that be scripted in, right? So you have that that's the yeah. case of a director and a writer who's willing to literally change the script to accommodate yeah. the illusion. Yeah. And and Ken would uh, would rewrite a whole scene if he liked if he liked an idea. So he would and he used to physically write it. I mean he used to he'd get in at six in the morning and retype the whole scene. And it would all be photocopied and ready to go by 9.30 when the actors were in. He was super fast. He, he, he trained in TV writing and he used to do it all on the typewriter. And uh, he was kind of a genius in a way. And I was very fortunate because I learned a lot about theatre from him. And he, he trained, his, he was a protege of Joan Littlewood, who was the great innovator of theatre. Um, and... Uh, one of one of the great innovative theatres in the 50s and 60s. So uh, I didn't really know at the time, but those were amazing days. And he would go, he would do anything. He would. There wasn't that sort of division of labour that you have now, where you can't, you know, like on Broadway, you can't move a prop, or you can't, you know, the carpenter's got to move the door, and the the stage manager's got to put the bolt down, and all this sort of. Thing. It was completely the opposite. Everyone just kind of mucked in. You worked till three in the morning on stuff, and it was. I know that there's got to be regulation over stuff, otherwise there's, but it's gone to, you know, it's gone too much the other way. But I, I learned in that forum. Can you talk a little bit about, because I think, I feel like one of the biggest challenges in designing magic for the show is getting it in. Because you have a whole team of people. There's a choreographer who's mo who's saying how people need to move. There's a director. Uh, I think there was a quote that said, the, uh, somebody asked you what the hardest thing about uh, consulting for theater is. And you said, the first thing I'd say is that you have to make sure it doesn't get cut. That may sound flippant, but you have to fight to make sure it doesn't get pushed into a corner that doesn't get ousted by other factors. Uh, uh, can you talk a little bit about that struggle? And also, were there any effects that you loved that that were cut that are like dream effects that you that you wish you had seen in the show? Um, I think when things are cut, you kind of tend to put them out of your mind a bit. Um, but I I think that you don't you only fight for something if it's right because I've also let things go. There's sometimes I've done stuff. And I felt it's not right for the scene or it holds things up or you don't want to draw attention. It's got to be right with the flow of the story and the scenic element. Um, but there is there is a thing that if you're not careful, you have to be present and you have to be you have to be around because every every department is focused on their own work and magic is no special thing. It's just one element. And I think Jim Steinmeier talks about the stage being prime real estate during a tech. And very often it's hard to get stage time. So very often, you know, I will take any stage time I can get to, to improve something or work on something. 
And early on, I used to be nervous about doing prototype stuff in rehearsal rooms, but I, I also learned that whatever you can do very early in rehearsals, like five minutes early in rehearsals is worth an hour on stage at the end because people are more relaxed and there isn't the stress. And if you, if you can get something in, you know, correctly formed early on, uh, then that's, that's the best way. I mean, there are opposite things. There are opposite stories like Pippin, where actually I didn't get engaged till the day rehearsal started and stuff, but that was an unusual process. Um, but mostly it's, it, there are lots of shows I turned down, lots of things. I, I've become quite good at recognizing when something's going to be a, a non-starter. <laughs> you know, like, cause I, I'll talk to the director and I'll talk to the designer. And I'll think it doesn't feel like there's really space for this. And, it's, uh, but I've been blessed with working with the team, Matthew Warchus, Rob Howe, um, Hugh Vanston, that, that team um, on, that I did a, a lot of those uh, big, bigger shows with, like Matilda and um, uh, Ghost the Musical and Our House and uh, The Lord of the Rings, um, you know, lots of, lots of different shows of different, a Groundhog Day, lots of lots of different stuff I've done with that team. So we start to know each other a bit and <laughs> in that sense. And is there, are, when you're, when you're pitching ideas to a theatrical team, are you doing it, it with budgets in mind with, or are you trying to pitch them the dream ideas first? And then like, is there a, there's, is there a strategy or a, or a way you approach no, it's just, it's pitching? A, it's, it's, it's coming up with appropriate ideas, I think. So it's, and in the, I, I don't. I think that for me, uh, the story is always the drive to, you know. And it, it may sound unlikely, but in in truth, that's what gives me the ideas. Like Invisible Man, half that stuff that I came up with. There's no way I would have thought of coming up with any of it because I wasn't working towards a goal. And then you've got the restrictions of like the guy's got to play the scene before he takes the bandages off his head, and how do you work that out? And you you work backwards and. And then if, you, if you're with, you know, as I say, when I worked with Ken Hill, he was making a lot of those decisions with me and, it, and in some cases for me. But I eventually learned to be sort of confident enough to do it myself. It's still, it's still weird, though, because you never quite know whether you've come up with the right thing. And as far as um, effects being cut, I mean, there was a big vanish at the beginning of Lord of the Rings, the vanish of Bilbo Baggins that in Toronto... Um, it was a really good vanish. Bilbo <laughs> <laughs> was in the middle of a circle of hobbits and he, on his 75th birthday, he puts the ring on and he just vanishes in the middle of the stage, at, at, surrounded by a circle of people. And it's an optical vanish. And, and it was cut on the first, fourth preview. And I was very upset. It was, it was cut because of various logistical things about getting the scenery in position and the flow of the show. And when we came to do it at the Theatre Royal Drury Lane in London, um, it was we found a different way to to get the physical scenery, uh, but I think I I remember um, figuring out that it took because uh, it, it was a preset and it took like it took like about fifty people to be doing exactly the right thing at exactly the right <laughs> moment, um, including the people that were sat on the stage and the, uh, the the preset and the lighting and all this sort of stuff, and it was it looked like magic and anyone that saw it you know I was really pleased with it. And one day uh, I was on holiday in Cuba and I got a text from the director. This is like three months after we opened. Matthew watches, he texted me, he went, Bilbo didn't vanish, what happened? 
And I was like, as if at eight o'clock every night, I had to mix a magic potion. Right. <laughs> I to do it that night. Of course, it turned out it was some light had become unplugged or something. Do you find that, like, when a magician screws up, I think it's a it's a big it's a high impact moment because the magi- the reason the magician is there is to make that girl vanish or to make that guy float. If a trick doesn't go off in a musical, does do, does that have a stronger or sort of weaker impact than if it happened in a magic show? Well, I think if it's like the the if the story's hanging on it, like right. if the invisible man's meant to take his bandages off and he's just sat there. <laughs> I heard uh, there was a moment where he, there there was a. The Invisible Man undid his bandages and half his head was still there. Uh, no, I think there was a time there was, let's just say there was a switch involved at one point. And I think there was a time when the chair, the chair spun around. And, and <laughs> I think we did we did a version of it at the Menier Chocolate Factory 10 years ago. And I think there was a night in, in a preview where, because it was so cramped there, it is literally a chocolate factory. I mean, and... Um, I think there was a night where he spun around and half the bandages were like pulled away. So he was already like half invisible. And he looked like some weird, like distorted alien. (laughs) Well, you know what, let's let's, uh, talk about sort of magic in practice. Um, One of the Broadway shows uh, that I saw that you worked on uh, was Pippin, which uh, I don't know if you know this, but uh, the reason I'm even in the arts is uh, a lot of it is due to my grandmother who would take me to a Broadway show every year for my birthday. That was the birthday present, was I would get a playbill and we would pick out which show we were gonna see. Uh, we'd go to lunch or dinner and that was every year was my birthday present. And one of the last shows I ever saw with my grandmother was the Pippin on Broadway. And she right. loved it. We sat like front or second row mezzanine and Andrew Martin flies up and it's an old lady doing this incredible thing. And it's like a surprising moment. I remember her just being like, you could see her. I looked at my grandmother, she smiled. One of my favorite memories of my grandmother um, and it's due to that show. So that show has a huge place in my heart. Um, and I know you were involved in the magic with that. Upside, Andrea Martin upside down, hanging from the trapeze, singing a number. Yeah, and and it's a big responsibility because it's a show that literally has the song Magic to do in it. Yeah. Which puts a heavy burden on the magic in the show. I occasionally um, still remind the producers of that when because we're just about to open Australia as well. They're like, I was like, yeah, maybe let me know a few weeks before. Well, I think one of the best ways to talk about how you uh, incorporate magic into the show and how you train uh, potentially non-magician actors to do very magical things. We have the star of Pippin on Broadway. Uh, I am so so excited. Make some noise. Get excited. It's Matthew James Charles. Give it up for him, everybody. Uh, I'm palming something, you can't see it, it's fine. (laughs) Hello, Matthew, thank you so much for joining us. Of course, it's a pleasure to be here. So uh, I believe the first time you met Paul was working on the show Pippin, right? Yeah, we were in, that was uh, was a hurricane, right? Which was it, which one was that? It must have actually been exactly eight years ago this week. Yeah. Because I had flown in and you just started rehearsals and I'd only spoken to Diane Paulus about two weeks before and got on a plane. And you were rehearsing in New York, but you were opening an ART in uh, the uh, American so Refugee Theatre. Uh, where was it? On, on, uh, in Union Square, that place, what was it called? Yeah, I think we were in, because of the hurricane, We, we I flew in Hurricane Sandy, because I remember Sorry. sitting in the flat you know, with Diane and putting a lot of the ideas together during the day after the hurricane. 
So we were in a funny little rehearsal room on the first floor somewhere before we moved to Union Square. And wow. half the city was out, wasn't it? And I remember walking in and, you know, Terry Mann and Andrea and everyone was there just being blown away by you. I don't know what number you were doing, but I was like, wow, there's a lot of talent in this room. <laughs> it was kind of, kind of intimidating amount of energy and talent and Patina Miller and yourself. And it was incredible, actually. And Bettina at one point, I think, does the fire from hands, which it was that was that similar to the the fire in hands I showed earlier uh, in the Zodiac Brothers? Is there a direct line between the two? She actually did a it was a hand flash thing, but she did it. Um, I think she did it in one of the links because the leading player has this. It's, it's such a strange show, <laughs> Matthew. It's like such a weird thing, and you have this character who's just called the leading player who never really has a name, who sort of right. orchestrates everything. Um, and at the end kind of tries to encourage Pippin to jump into the flames with, Why not? you know, it, you know, <laughs> and, um, and so she does that at one point, she clicks her fingers and, you know, it's just a hand oh, that. Yeah, now I remember. I was thinking, wait, I can't remember that. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. And one of the interesting things too about Pippin is there's obviously actual magic. Like there is, there are illusions in the show that are very clearly magic. But then there are moments that are magic that the audience might not even know. Like uh, there's some knife throwing um, that just looks real. Um, I know Matthew, you were we, uh, there. There were some sort of discoveries that went along with the knives. Yeah. Well, I, I was we were talking about the. Um, I don't want to give away the trick. I've been. Yeah. I've. I've gone to secrecy. You, I know you the rule. You can, I, you can the rule. About it. I was saying that we sort of like Paul. We we take we taken two tricks and combine them into one by mistake, right? And and then there was that moment that um oh that's a good picture. Uh, <laughs> it was a moment where I didn't send it. I sent it. Of course I sent it. Oh, it's even worse. What's going on with my hair? <laughs> oh yes, I remember that. That was, that? that was kind of recent. That was like 2016, I think. My arm looks very skinny. Did you make it? <laughs> <laughs> it's quick no, but there was this crazy, there was this, yeah, we combined this trick. And then I, I was I was saying, I remember Copperfield coming, it was Copperfield came back that night and you were there. And he was like, something, he said, there's something funny going on with that trick. And I no, was like. he knew something different. He knew yeah. it was the stabbing. It was you at one point, spoiler alert, Pippin stabs his father. And yes. um, Terry Mann, and we have a Terry Mann. <laughs> yeah, we wanted to do a, you know, we wanted to have, see the knife, and we wanted to see it pushed it, and not not just a retractable knife thing, you know. Right. And it was interesting. Yeah, David, uh, David Copley picked picked up on that. He said that was yeah. something different. He's very observant. It may be my proudest moment ever on stage. Then I was like, and you don't know. <laughs> I was like, what <laughs> happened? What I always thought was amazing, Matthew, and I, um, I'm not just saying this on air, I would say this to you, you know, is when, you know, you had to do so much in that show, because obviously you're doing so many things, and also it's got to be said that, that it, was a, it was the first Broadway revival, yeah. and it was this new concept of, of Diane Paulus and, you know, designer uh, Scott Pask, and... Um, of doing Pippin and Circus, because originally it was like Commedia dell'arte and, and it was a different thing. So that whole circus thing and all that integration of the circus, and of course Gypsy Snyder who did the circus, and that was all new and, and actually it's a really manic, crazy process. And 
so much innovation has to happen and so much is on your shoulders to be that I, I couldn't believe how how interested you were in the magic because I've, I've been in similar positions where some where someone could go look do you not realize i've got the rest of this show and rather dismissive of it but you were always well, this is why i was so like have you there not to blow smoke up your bum but uh <laughs> Gil, you know like you you were so your story was so important to you so there was this like wonderful collaboration between harrison between the two of us where like, i would reach out to paul about story you know we would talk about story a lot because he was always there and you know there was there were sections when you were just building like these million dollar pieces of scenery for like five dollars because you're amazing like that in the front of this like decrepit old theater you're like pulling pieces of wood together to make somebody disappear and it would work and it would be perfect and incidentally they they wouldn't rebuild the thing they would just no. use that thing <laughs> it's so true like but um that was what was so exciting about like our friendship and where that blossomed almost immediately because i needed i needed him there in order to tell the story it was it was so integral to the story the magic um it was important and and it made for those moments like you know the moment when i took terry down even though he was obviously making fun of me the whole time when we did it which is what makes him so brilliant <laughs> um that moment was so special because of that it was it was really quite frightening people were people gasped do you remember like when that happened they would always there'd be this gasp in the audience which which felt almost like that the spontaneity of a variety show you know like it had that like you just didn't know what was happening which is so rare for a musical that's done eight times a week we, we had that every night so special thanks to paul but i think one of the other things about it is that actually all of the, when i think i've only it's only just occurred to me because you mentioned like a variety and i remember years ago i was working with do you did you ever work with stephen pimlock he used to be an mm. artistic director of the Shakespeare Company. Died on which he was quite young. Stephen was a, a really gifted director, and I took it. We were working on the um, we were working on the opera of Macbeth in um, oh, it's with oh. Rachel Rachel Bay Jones. Look at that grimace. The only person who doesn't give a shit about that photo is Rachel. We are yeah. trying to look attractive as possible, and Paul, you're pulling it off. <laughs> I'm failing. Rachel looks fabulous. <laughs> they've got another one of those but where you're both pushing my ears like that. Um, but no i took i took stephen pimlock an associate director of the shakespeare company to the to the hands of variety theater the theater that siegfried and roy started and when we walked in we got there a bit late and there was a chimpanzee wearing a sequin waistcoat walking across a tightrope <laughs> Wow. And we sat down and watched this act, this show, which was all full of variety acts. And Stephen loved it and was fascinated by it. I said, "Why are you so fascinated with it?" He said, "Because the immediacy that a variety act has with the audience is how the Shakespearean actors would have done it, and yeah. a lot of performers don't have that. And actually, when I think about it, the thing that was so one of the things that was so powerful about all you guys as a cast is I think you all had that a little bit. Terry's very much plays to the crowd." And yeah. and Martin, you know, they've all got that magic, which a lot some actors can't do that. They can't, they're nervous of doing that. But you all well, have that. Concept lends itself to that too. I mean, but you know, what was was fabulous was when things didn't go right, when things went wrong. You know, because we were all so game if that happened, and the audience then were just in a completely new place. They just felt like they were witnessing something new and special, and, and they were. We were. We didn't know what was going to happen. Do you, remember are, do, you give your, do you give your actors outs if the magic doesn't work? Uh, is, is there a contingency plan? No, he likes to watch uh, you film. Yeah, no, I think, I think that, that I leave that there, brilliant. 
If, if, you tell his, if you give his tricks away, he watches you burn and enjoys it. <laughs> There's a great moment. I don't remember this, Matthew. There was um, the original Pippin didn't have an intermission. That's right, yeah. Um, so suddenly we were like, hang on, the king's dead on the stage and we need to like do a big wrap up of that one. And we didn't have a way of doing it. And I remember Terry Mann was on the floor and he was, he'd been stabbed. And it was like, um, we need to get rid of the king's body somehow. And I think it was Terry that said, what about that thing where the magician's covered, the person's covered with a sheet and they float? And I remember just, it was always like that. And that Diane's energy was actually to, she would take an idea, she would say herself, she would take an idea from the cleaner. Like she was very open. She'd like, what, yeah. has anyone got any thoughts? And I remember, and I said to Terry, and actually I knew a way of, of doing that, which uh, a method that originally had been originated by Jeffrey Durham actually years ago. And, and I knew it and I'd done it in a trade show. So we actually had made a version of like this Azra thing within two days, like out of an old bed sheet. Cause it was lot, you know, it was like, um, not lockdown, but it was like the, the city was shut because of the hurricane. And I had this guy, Ron Binion, who was a puppet maker I'd met on Ghost, And he was amazing. Remember Ron, he was like running about with his bike and getting bits of materials. And I just think they had that energy. And I remember rehearsing it with Patina Miller just on the stairs, but just before I left New York. And it was all a bit like, it was a bit frantic. I don't think we ever knew what was going to happen with it. I, I didn't know it was, that was going to be. I remember that. I remember you rehearsing it there. And I was just like, wow, this place. I mean, that, that, that was, again, so exciting because you were creating the, 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 the mysticism of a magic show in this like super dangerous acrobatic world which is completely grounded by this, this age-old theater piece. It was like, like, when do you see all of those things? And when you can play to them, because it's a play within a play, it was such a perfect combination of all those things. You know what, it's interesting as well is, is I remember Diane telling me, um, we, we did a little talk at Harvard together, because she, obviously, ART is connected to Harvard. And she said that um, Stephen, um, Schwartz was really against that levitation in Morning Glow because he thought he <laughs> took it away from the song. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> and she she had to fight for it with him. And you know you talk about the fight. So if that had been me on my own, if Diane hadn't been behind it, I would have gone. Yeah. yeah. Because the composer yeah. would have had the show. And and I think at the end, I remember watching it with Stephen sat next to me and he said, I love this now. But I think at first it felt uncomfortable because it was probably so different to what I did originally. And and actually, the conductor does about something. You can see him. You can see him at the back of the house, and you just know you're like, oh, oh no, he doesn't like it. <laughs> that sounds terrifying. <laughs> it is quite terrifying, especially when you're singing his songs. I'm just like, oh, now I actually have to sing these songs for Stephen Schwartz. Right. <laughs> there can there can be nothing more terrifying than that. Yeah, but he wow. must have been a fan of what you were doing with it. I, he... I hope so. I got fired. I made it from ART to Broadway, so something was something was okay. <laughs> I was just really good at that stabbing thing, so he was like, "Well, we have to keep him." <laughs> and have you tried to? Uh, has there, has there been magic in any other performances that you've done? Has that led to uh, uh, a little bit of extra magic? No, I wish. I, I mean, I, I hope, I, I loved doing it so much. You, you mentioned the knife throwing too, which was fun. Again, that was, that was a practical thing that was set up. I mean, I was throwing real knives. So there were a couple of occasions where one of them would just fall out and bang on the stage and the audience then would, the whole thing would completely change because they, they genuinely then were like, oh, this is, this, this is real. <laughs> He's throwing knives and I was. 
I got pretty good at it in the end. <laughs> no, I haven't. I haven't. Um, not yet. I hope. I can't wait for the next opportunity, though. I love that. And I guess uh, the, the final question I'll ask you, and, and thank you so much for being here. This is uh, this is a thrill. Um, but I know you guys are friends now. Uh, is that is that? I think I feel like that's a testament to uh, sort of the what Paul brings to any of these productions in terms of he's such a team player. He's so fighting for the story and the show that it's. It feels like it's hard not to become uh, to be a friend with him. Yeah, that, that's like Paul, Paul makes it. Paul makes it fun. Paul, Paul, there's no a. There's no one better than Paul at, at what he does, and 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 he make and he makes it fun at the same time. You just you, you, you that that's where the experience and the energy comes from because it's not about like oh this is how you execute the trick perfectly. It's about why he loves the trick and why it's going to work the way it does within the context of the story. So like. That, and, and, and incidentally, that's why we've become such good friends because we like to stay up till three o'clock in the morning talking, like dissecting things, talking about how things are done and most of the business and bitching like two little crows. But we were, it was interesting. I mean, thank you for saying that. It's, it's, I owe you a drink. But, um, <laughs> I am um, also, what was interesting is when, although we didn't meet when I did Ghost, you were on Broadway doing Spider-Man. Yeah. Um, obviously, Matthew was also one of the two original Spider-Man on Broadway, and um, and so I knew of you uh, being there as an English guy working on Broadway, and obviously there was that connection as well of, of these two Brits on you know working on Broadway at the time, and uh, we were both. Um, uh, I, I think it's fair to say we were both in shows that weren't considered to be smash hits. <laughs> yeah, they were. I mean, Ghost was fabulous too. It was Ian McGregor. He, yeah. You you knew him. Through something Stratford East or something, and there was some connection. A friend, a mutual friend of us from London, who said, "Oh, you guys have to meet each other." And then, of course, I saw Paul Keeves' name on the call sheet, and I was like, "Oh, this is the guy Ian's been talking about. This amazing fusion <laughs> expert who's going to teach me lots of tricks." Yeah, uh, I love it. Well, Matthew, thank you so so much for joining. I really really appreciate yeah. it. I know you have some uh, big projects coming out, so make sure you check out, uh, follow him on all the social media, all that stuff. Uh, Matthew James, uh, Tyler, everybody, give it up for him. I like I say that as if there's people to applaud other than ourselves, but we can all applaud <laughs> so myself. Bravo, yeah. Matthew. Great work. Great work. Thank you so much. Thank you, Matthew. Uh, by the way, uh, we we alluded to this a little bit. Um, Obviously, working with actors is different than working with magicians, and you've done both. Um, you've consulted, obviously, on Broadway, the West End, but you've also consulted with uh, David Blaine, Dynamo, uh, Darren Brown, Luis DeMatos. Uh, that's your book, by the way, Plugged uh, Hocus Pocus. Oh, yeah. Definitely worth uh, picking up a copy uh, from any good bookseller. <laughs> and is there, is there a totally different approach when you get brought in for a specifically magic project? Um, what is the difference between approaching say David Blaine's touring show versus Ghost the Musical? Uh, well, you, you're working to, uh, not a story, but to someone's vision or trying to find the vision maybe of what they want to do on stage. And actually David Blaine, I, I sort of became friendly with more or less around the same time as I met Matthew. I think it was almost the same week actually. Um, and I think uh, a lot of that came from from Ghost, you know, being on Broadway, which I'm very grateful of, you know. Um, and so David was talking for years about doing a live show, and he was 
he, he was, we'd always hang out. So it was fun to hang out. And he, I, I saw him, you know, we chat about things he was doing on the show and like, you go, okay, can you figure out this thing with the alligator or, you know, <laughs> and, um, and then suddenly he was doing the live, suddenly he booked the live show and uh, it, it was very, very different because it was like um, a few weeks to put it together. And we literally had a, a board with post-it notes on, you know, trying to figure out what was what the show was going to be and um uh it was it was uh, the, the, the amazing thing is that in a musical my my dear friend peter darling choreographer he says with, with a musical it's like launching a ship once you get that thing going it's very very hard to change it and turn it around because, <laughs> because just getting one minute changed of a show could be a whole automation sequence, relighting, getting the actors into costume on stage, tea breaks, da da da. It is hellish to try and change something in a musical. So you better try and get it right early on right. because it doesn't change much. It's it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Let alone remaking a prop, and you know you can't get a prop maker in who isn't a union person all of this stuff you know lots of the stuff like that but when when you're working with um a magician as talented as david blaine and a personality as compelling then you can actually make changes very quickly and um and i just think um it's also you know those little challenges it's more like working with darren brown you know Der darren is like with andy nyman i've done a lot of shows and pieces in his shows over the years and you know Sometimes it, it, it has been me and Andy and Darren sitting in a room and just going, well, let's just try this or let's just try this. And it's much more versatile. and You can change things quicker because it's one person that's basically driving it. And, um, and I remember being absolutely certain that I, I was quite involved in, with the mouth so of David's because they couldn't figure out the half the method was, was kind of missing. And I, I sort of came up with it. And D D David was always very generous about talking about that because it was one of the first things I contributed to the show. They'd been talking about it, like him and Assi and everyone. Been, and it just so happens, it was just a really peculiar bit of knowledge that I had about a strange thing that was just <laughs> the right, you know, just lucky. And I, because of my, I guess my training coming more from like stage cabaret, uh, my, my references were a little bit different to say card magic or something, which I'm lousy at. So I came and I was like, literally within 15 minutes, I'd solved this thing. And based on, you know, something that I knew, it wasn't like an ingenious invention. It was something that I knew from something else. And um, it was uh, it was amazing because then David put it into the show. And I was I was absolutely certain he shouldn't open his show with a mouse show. So it's too extreme. You have to, like, start gently. And literally on the on the day of the first re dress rehearsal, I think he came up, he said, I'm absolutely opening with a mouse show. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, you know, they're going to. And you know the audience loved it. He was so completely right. But you know you can do that. You can change the order. You can much easier. It's a much more nimble thing. A, a show like that, you can you can switch and change, and um, it's just totally different. And but, but I've been blessed to what you know that David I just think is a is a real star. You know when he did his live show, as somebody that hadn't done much live theatre, you know from the minute he got on stage, he's so comfortable on stage. And people love being there, you know. It was wonderful to see that first show. I remember it was electric.
And while, by the way, while you were, you were describing the creative process behind the sewing of the mouth, our, our uh, other surprise guest was nodding uh, his head. Uh, he was, uh, he opened for David Blaine on the tour, worked with you extensively. Uh, one of my favorite people. Uh, he's amazing. Make some noise. Get excited for Mario the Master. <laughs> Hello. Paul. Hey. <laughs> uh, you know, it's so funny because I, I, that was the story I was going to tell. It was exactly what you were saying. <laughs> you know, because you know, it's, it's crazy because on my end, that when you arrived, that was like a very big moment for me. That was like my first time really like even being asked to be consulting something that's so big. And I was so nervous with my notebook, just listening, you know, all the magicians competing about this problem solving. And and then Paul walks in, you know, after a day and a half of us not solve this problem for a day. And a half. <laughs> We're like fighting, like people are arguing. We, we got notepads out like, David, this is how we should do it. Nothing is gelling. Paul comes in and everyone is just looking at Paul like, what are you doing here? Like, we've been at this, you know, and within, <laughs> like, it was crazy. Cause like within like four minutes, Paul's just like, oh, <laughs> you should just, and then he's like, give me a paper, give me a pen. And he's like, here, you should just do this. And then it was it. And it, and it was, uh, and that's how I met Paul Keith. I mean, it was, it was a powerful moment. It was a very, and it's funny that, it, it was a big deal for everyone at the table, Paul. You know, it was a big deal for everyone at the table. It was, it was wild. That's the dream. I, I've consulted on projects and you always have that dream the day before you go into work that that's what you're going to be able to do is that you walk in and they go, yeah, we spent a week trying to figure this out. And you're like, oh, really? Boop, boop, boop. And they're like, whoa. Like, yeah, you're, solving, exactly. like you're solving, the, you're the janitor solving the equation. In Goodwill right. Hunting. Well, that's what Paul did. He's just like, yeah, here's the white. Paul is the Goodwill Hunting of Magic. The one time it's gonna happen once in my life. I, I tell you a funny caveat to that was that I the reason I knew this, and I, I'm not gonna say exactly what it was, but I but I'd done an act while I was in Italy in that thing I was talking about earlier, that yeah. when I was working following all the strippers. And David, that photograph was from the New York Post that you were showing that with Mario and uh Ussie. Yeah. And on that interview, David was really generous about giving credit to people, and he said something like he must have said something like, I'd worked in a strip club in Italy. And when it was in the article, <laughs> it read, let's just say it read very differently. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I remember that article. And, and you're right. David made a big deal about plugging us and lifting us up, you know. And it was, uh, it was a sacred time, you know, for me. I mean, especially, it, it reminded me of how you talked about Jeff McBride in your earlier years, you know, just... That was like for me during that time period, you know, just kind of absorbing every moment. And uh, but Paul, I gotta say one thing, okay? You were my favorite person, hands down. Like during that whole time, like I just, I just, I just loved like how smart you are and how humble you are at the same time, which is something that I feel like you don't see often in people. I'm gonna have to like recover from this. You know, thing. like. It, like the way you are in the board meeting was the way you are when we're eating dinner, you know, and that's a, you know, it was just a cool, but I have a story. I have a story. I was hesitant to tell. And, oh. and Paul, I was listening like, you know, and it's so funny because Harrison was like, do you have anything to share? Any story? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll tell you a story, you know, but then it hit me so hard. I'm so dumb. I have this like crazy story. Like, so I, I perform mostly magic for families and kids, you know? So here I am in this big room with all these big stars that are like consulting and even something as prestigious as the Magic Castle. I've never been to it, you know? And 
And then we can see, you know, where I'm going with this. <laughs> so what happened was, and you know me, Harrison, I'm very punk rock. Look at my backdrop. I'm very like anti-establishment. I'm like in your face kind of performer. And here's gentle, kind-hearted Paul, you know, go to the Magic Castle as my guest, Mario, you know. He just met me, you know. And I walk into the castle and look at me now. What's the first thing they say to me when I walk into the castle? It's like, you know, you got to bump, you know, you got to bend it down, you know. So that's how it started, you know. And then I was like, all right, you know, whatever. Now they're touching me and and then and then I'm wearing black jeans and they're like, you can't wear jeans at the castle. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, I can't go to the castle. Like, you know who's um, guest? I'm Paul Keeves guest, you know? And, uh, and they made me change my pants. I had to change my pants. And I'm going in the dressing room wearing these Magic Castle pants. And this is my first time in the castle. Talk about being young and stupid and just learning the ropes and how kind. This is why I said that about Paul to begin with, because he could have taken this in so many other ways, but just that generosity. So long story short, I'm in the castle with these new pants and my <laughs> collar. When I walk in, I popped it back up, you know, cause I don't know like how this all works. And, uh, and then there's a guy touching me, you know, at one floor fixing this and <laughs> I'm getting more and more annoyed, but I'm with Paul and, and uh, I, we met, who uh, we met uh, a couple of people there and it was really cool. They saw some of my artwork, long story short, out of anger, I didn't return the pants. Oh no! <laughs> and I left my pants at the castle, and uh, and I just, and it was really funny because like this is my intro to this whole magic community, you know, and uh, and like <laughs> <laughs> so, you have some pants at the castle still now. So Paul. Paul, no, I'm kidding. These are actually, <laughs> I'm kidding. No, but the truth is, the truth of the story is not only Paul, like you're so smart and like you're always problem solving on this consulting thing and you're always true to yourself. Like you don't care about pleasing people. Like you're very, your guns kind of personality and I love that. And, um, but it was just nice when I realized what I did and how wrong it was, I, you know, I apologize and I, I quickly packaged the pants, you know, and I mailed them back with an apology letter to the castle. And, uh, and I felt really guilty, you know, I felt really bad. And Paul was like, stop feeling bad. And I was like, Dude, I'm so sorry. Like this, like, I didn't realize you're a guest and like all this, you know, and, and then, you know what Paul, you know what Paul made me do? Cause I felt so embarrassed and like, so guilty. I'm like a little kid, you know, like he's like, get a piece of paper. And I was like, okay. He's like, this is your guilt. We're crumbling it up and you're throwing it in the car. <laughs> I don't want to hear this anymore. And I, and I threw it and it was over. And it was all because like, I just admire so much, you know, what Paul does as an art form, you know, and that, that we're all in. Like he's just so, this is where you shine is on the stage and behind the scenes and creating all these stuff. So, but anyway, it was just a funny story. And I learned a lot in a very short amount of time. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, uh, I think we burned that bit of paper, didn't we? And I was, I was like, just don't worry about it. They should, the other thing i got to say, Mara, is you always look like, Mar I've never seen you look anything other than like immaculate in your own way. Like you're so, you have such a unique, great style. And this is what drives me mad about dress codes. I mean, I can see the castle. You know, the castle is also, they're almost putting on an act of that because when people, the lay public go, they expect it. But at one point, the Magic Circle had this ridiculous dress code. It was like the most, I was like, we well, don't admit people from the public. Why do we have a dress code? 
make it obligatory pointed hats and cloaks you know <laughs> it was just it drives me a bit mad just because you always look so cool like so immaculate and it's you and it's like magic should encourage individuality yeah, and i know and like and, and i realize now you know now that i'm in it and I, I perform at the magic castle you know they do a family show you know they invited me and like but anyway this is how early it was when i met you like this was so new to me the whole magic community like the year before aussie wind saw me you know at a you know at some type of festival you know but anyway paths crossed and i got to experience your genius and I also got to experience your generosity, you know, as a person off stage too. And like, and those are the things, those are my sacred moments, you know, that I hold dear, you know, and I, uh, and I, you know, I read this to my kids, you know, I love this book. What is know? that book? What is what? that? <laughs> it's Hocus Pocus, the tale has been making really? really good decisions by Paul Keefe, by Daniel Radcliffe, available where all quality books are sold. But do you remember, I remember some great moments on, on the, the 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 whole David Blaine thing was wonderful, wasn't it? With with Peter and with yeah, Lini and like the tea. It was it's like it was really like a family thing, and it was a bit crazy. And yeah, we all had our moment. We all had our meltdown moments on that show, didn't we? Oh yeah, we all you know, and that's and so it, it, was, it was hard, and yet you know, it was felt feel so proud of being involved with that show, and and it was great to meet you on it. And uh, I remember we had some really good creative moments, you know, yeah. doing, won't mention the routine, but you know, like with that other, there was another big routine in that show that I think we kind of cracked a lot of it together, didn't we? We were it like, do you remember what I said? There was one point, because everyone was going around in circles, and I just said, yeah. look, we're all gonna go off into pairs. Yes, yes. We're gonna have three different, uh, we're gonna have, we're going to have three different solutions, but in 10 minutes, we've got to have three different solutions for this thing. Yeah. And do you remember that? Oh, because 100%. That was, the, that was a freaking thing. You have yeah. to, you know, something I learned from Luis de Matos when I, I worked with Luis on a, a 13 part TV show in Portugal. And Luis is, is brilliant and he's the hardest working guy. He's an absolute charming man and he's done more magic on TV than anyone else. He's incredible and organized the, you know, the conventions. And he used to do this thing, because we'd be discussing this, and we'd have to film like one episode every, I think it was every week, it was less than every week. And he used to go, oh, that's all very good. But what if we have to do it in 10 minutes? Mm. And that's a really good thing, you yeah. know? It's a yeah. good thing, because he was very good at that. He'd say, you know, yeah, but we need a, like, we need a practical way of doing it. And, in, and it wasn't necessarily in 10 minutes, but it may as well have been when you're trying to turn over that amount of material. And you can, there is a certain point where you go, you could do this, you could do that, you could do that. There's a certain point where you just have to get on with it and you have to like yeah. try and, and then, yeah. down the essence of what it should be. And then, and then, and in, and in magic, it's always about effect. You know, it's always about effect. And, and I think that, you know, you've got to be careful about disappearing into technical, you know, impressing people because they secretly know you've done this, this and this. Yeah, um, and that was part of the problem too, is like, because everyone's a magician, we're thinking with these blinders on too, solving these problems, you know, and uh, and it, it's true because you split everyone in teams. You said that, you like that. And, and this is where it became so awesome for me was it felt like I was a kid again. Like we were on teams. We have to defeat those two guys, you know? Are <laughs> Paul on your team? <laughs> Yeah. I was on Paul's team for a All right. <laughs> yeah, but we, but we were t I learned that from doing, I did this three month mime school 
and you had like 15 minutes to come up with a sketch, you know. Yeah, yeah. And of course you become creative because you get, you get a bit competitive because you want to make the other teams laugh or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. And uh, no, I, I think being really blessed, uh, it, was, it was great. And, uh, and I'm, it's really delightful to see you. And, uh, and it was great to see you at Magic Live and, you yeah. know, and a wonderful family. And it's always good to see you, your feeds and stuff. And it was so amazing. Also, it was so great that David put you on as, you know, a support act. And, oh my goodness. What a good I, you know, I didn't see it, but I hear you absolutely stormed it. No, it was it was a great, like I said, just like the New York Post article. You know, like that's David, right? Like he he lifts everyone up in that article, puts our names up there, and puts it in a positive way. And uh, and then with this opportunity to perform, I mean, that was really risky on his part. You know, I know now that I'm older. I was so young. I just feel so much younger back then. And I, but the idea of like bringing 15 kids from the audience and me performing to the kids and hoping the adults can connect to that. I mean, that's a big risk, you know? That was really nice that he allowed me. And from that risk, Paul, it's that's how I was able to pitch to theaters and tour with my family for the past two, three years was having that as a resume, you know? So he helped me, you know, and like you said, he's, he's one of those people, you know, like he, he's done a lot, you know, and uh, I'm super grateful. Yeah, There's a it? comment, by the way, um, from one Katie Rosa, who, uh, <laughs> I think he's uh, connected to you, Mario. <laughs> I think it's your lovely wife. Yeah. Um, Mario talks about Paul all the time, Hart. So there yeah. is a, a second there. Uh, but thank you so much for joining us. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, I know you're working on a, a book as well. So make sure you go to MarioTheMagician.com slash shop. It will be there as soon as it's available. Uh, he's an incredible uh, creative thinker and incredible performer. So make sure you check him out. It's Mario the Magician, everybody. Thank you so much. Bye, guys. Take care. Yeah. And uh, we are starting to get into uh, stoppage time. I feel like that was my most British sports reference I could do. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> if you have a question, please put it in the comments. Um, we're we're going to be here for uh, only a short while longer. So make sure if you have a question, uh, lock it in the comments on Facebook or on YouTube. Um, while those are coming in, um, I think there are, uh, are several. Um, one of the questions uh, that I still had, because uh, we've been talking about story uh, and the fun thing about your book, uh, which is uh, still available and awesome, Hocus Pocus, A Tale of Magnificent Magicians. Um, it's interesting to me because it's telling the history of these different magicians uh, and it's sneaking in uh, magic in the form of tricks that uh, people can learn by reading the book. And it feels like uh, since that was your first book, that has a lot to do with your career in the sense that you're also sneaking magic into story. Um, and is there... From the theatrical work that you've done, um, what lessons do you think magicians should draw from that in terms of uh, if, if they don't have the story uh, like a musical has, um, but applying that to making their magic more effective and, and enjoyable? It's, that's a, it's actually a really difficult question to answer because I think magicians doing magic is such a different thing. you know. And I've got to say that when I was doing that book, I loved the freedom of not having to worry about how, how things were going to be done. You know, it was amazing just to go, Oh, I can just say like Houdini appears in the back garden with an elephant and I don't have to <laughs> where he's going to be beforehand or who's going to bring the elephant in. <clears throat> I've got to say, you know, it was liberating because magic is such a pain in the ass. It's so difficult to do in a way. And it's so awkward and it's difficult. You've got to light it. Um, in terms of magicians, I think, I might come in from the extreme side and say be really careful about using stories in magic tricks. But 
um, it doesn't, you can do it and it certainly works. And if you look at like David Copperfield, especially his, um, you know, especially his early routines, they were very, very story driven and a lot of Henning's things. And of course the people around me here, Masculine and the band, Masculine and Cook, all of those great illusions started as stories. So I think in illusion and in, for me, stage performance was always about being in a character or being in some form of character because you're a, you know, I don't know if it's an actor playing the part of a magician like the Houdan thing, but I think you need to know your your character and why, why are you there doing magic? Um, and that might be a story thing. I mean, this is more like you know more about this because you're a comedian and all of that stuff. You walk out on stage, people go, who are you? What are you there for? And I don't think it's a question that magicians ask themselves enough. That's why my, my good friend um, Piff the Magic Dragon, you know, John Vanderput, you know, he hit on that by... by chance really but it's it's an almost perfect um reason to be there doing magic because that irony of being you know a magic dragon it's you're immediately the audience is immediately on your side and i think i learned that with the first show i did invisible man it actually starts off as 1904 musical with a troupe of players presenting this version of the invisible man as part of their 1904 show so it's all like shaky scenery and everything so <laughs> I think the audience is willing to invest a lot if you give them the chance to. Uh, I don't think that doing story magic is necessarily right for everybody, um, but I do think that magic is inherently a storytelling thing. Um, I, you know, I think I once uh, went to see a Cirque du Soleil storytelling show on Broadway with David Copperfield, and in the intermission, we went. God, we're really lucky with magic because magic is actually naturally suited to story whereas actually circus isn't you know it's like you can't necessarily make a trapeze artist into anything you want but magic is actually inherent in so many stories so i think remain open and um but i you know i don't think it's necessarily about telling that stories around magic but i think it's figuring out what story you're telling to the audience on stage about who you are why you're why you're doing the magic and understanding that relationship and you mentioned Copperfield. I think one thing that I always wondered, because um, uh, Copperfield obviously working with a big budget, um, some magicians are working with a small budget. Do you find it harder to to do do a show that has a smaller budget um, because it's restrictive, obviously, with what what you can afford, or is it sometimes harder when you have a show like Lord of the Rings, which is a massive budget, um, or a lot of these probably musicals have massive budgets where there's almost an infinite amount of possibilities, but you have to narrow it down to the correct one. Well, you've got to remember that they may be shows with a massive budget, but um, you don't necessarily get that part of the budget. And some, I remember <laughs> even on the Harry Potter, at one point I was doing a scene, actually it was a scene that never ended up in the film, but it was a scene shot. It was, it's in actually in the DVD on the, on the deleted scenes thing, and they didn't need the scene in the end. And it's all the kids in Hogwarts Hall who have meant to have been to Zonko's joke shop. So they're all doing like tricks that could be in that world you know, in, in the Harry Potter world, but also I had to physically do them in the in the room. So I had things like dancing handkerchiefs in bottles that flew around and people <laughs> caught them. Because I thought you'd buy that at Zonko's, it'd be a real, like a pet, it'd be like a dancing handkerchief, <laughs> using, you know, stuff like that. But one of the things was just simply um, some throw out streamers, um, you know, because we just wanted some visual candy in the background and they look, they look cool. And Alfonso Cuaron really loved them as well. And um, and there was actually a meeting on that film in which 
the producers called everyone together and asked Alfonso Cuaron to cut the number of throwouts used from four to two every take. You know, uh, because they, they yet they were busy returfing entire hillsides in Scotland. Right. <laughs> you know, and so very often, just because something has a big budget, it doesn't it doesn't mean to say that you get that you get access to it. Um, but I, uh, but, but I don't know. I I think sometimes a small budget can be helpful. I because I don't necessarily think that um, that ma- that the best magic moments are always about having an endless amount of budget. But then at the same time, you know, ghost, the effects in ghosts, I'll never really know how much they cost because a lot of them were absorbed in the set and in the scenic mm-hmm. build and in the engineering and in the automation. Uh, so and like the chalkboard in Matilda, I know cost $70,000 to make, um, but I wasn't intending it to be a expensive effect. It's just that that's how much it costs when they make <laughs> it. <in the> <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, yeah, Sometimes it's better not it. to know, probably. <laughs> yeah, I, I try to not know. I, I always find out if something the budget is a problem. <laughs> I once I, I once wrote a, a joke for a TV show uh, where they needed to have a little miniature version of the actor to so that the person was selling a doll of himself. Uh, and I didn't find out until after the episode was taped how expensive it was for them to find somebody to make this custom miniature doll. And I think if I'd been aware of how much money they would have spent on that doll, I might have considered a different prop. But sometimes, I mean, I think sometimes when you're working in like like a Broadway thing, you know, it's some of the the costs of the props is you know it's 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 absurd. Um, and I think price tags do do go up. I remember working on you know Finding Neverland that was somewhat unfortunately produced by Harvey Weinstein. Yeah. And I think, you know, as soon as you went to a prop house and they knew that he was, this was pre, you know, Me Too, just pre, actually. Uh, I'm sure that people put their, you know, they, they did the price tag just, you know, was what they, they asked for what they wanted to ask for. And, um, but Pippin was the opposite. I had this guy, Ron Binion, we were, we were literally constructing stuff in the, in the foyer of ART. We kept getting moved about because <laughs> they didn't want us. They're really the, the theatre was <laughs> the scenes with that show. So it all depends. And I think one of the things I've noticed about like like Ghost, for example, if you read any review of Ghost, uh, even the stuff that was on the billboard on the side, like your illusions were such a major draw because they were so incredible. Do you do, do you try to make yourself invisible, or is it one of those things where it like it it seems so strange to me that Broadway like people know magic exists. People have seen Copperfield and Lance Burden and Siegfried and Roy. What, it, what? How come Broadway has been so slow in a way to embrace some of these illusions? Like, uh, it's it feels like there there could be even more magic in Broadway. I mean, I think again, it's all just down to the the story, isn't it? It's like, I mean, and Matthew, it, and it also comes down to the individual directors because you're not going to get that many directors that want to put as much focus on magic in a show as. Mm. As Matthew Matthew Waters has spoken to him very recently because it's just opened in South Korea, and he was saying he was saying to me the magic Ghost has always been a magic show. He said obviously the story's in the first thing, but you know he said he always envisioned it would be a magic, and he he loved magic as a kid, and 
from very early on, I was able to do a workshop on that show. So before that show was designed, I went into a theatre in Oxford um, at the in middle of 2009, and I met uh, Tim Lutkin, who was uh, assistant to Hugh Vanston, and we played around with these things and, you know, rebuilt a version of the, the Blue Room for the first time in the UK for probably for 100 years. And, and figured out all this stuff. And then all of that stuff actually, with a bit of arm twisting, went into the, went into the set design. Um, and that process is not normal and may never happen again in that way. So, you know, the whole, everything about that set was, was designed, you know, brilliantly designed by, by Rob Howe, but he didn't enjoy that. And he would say that himself. <laughs> I remember he didn't speak to me for a week after the first preview. <laughs> And in the end, I went up to him in the pub and he was kind of in the corner. I said, Rob, I said, it kind of seems to have worked. What's, what's the problem? He said, because he said, I, I like my, my best ideas to be on show. And in this show, all my best ideas are invisible. Mm. And it was, it was true. And of course, in the end, he was thrilled with what we did. But I think it must be hard, to be, to be fair. For so, and he's, you know, Rob's just been nominated for another two Tonys, I think, or at least one Tony for Christmas Carol. You know, brilliant designer, won a Tony for Matilda. And, um, you know, it was it, it was amazing to have that opportunity. And it was really Matthew getting behind it um, that really pushed the magic to the fore. So I don't think it's so much as Broadway. Broadway is a series of individual producers and directors. So like Diane Paulus wanted to put that magic into Pippin and fought for it, you know, even though the poor people at ART were, were full on with the set and the costumes and it was like the breaking point for them. <laughs> the first day I had on that, the production manager burst into tears under the stage when he was showing me the trap. <laughs> you know, it was, it, it, it's, so I think theatre and musicals are risky enough and complicated enough without the imposition of all these complicated illusions and there's not that many success stories in there um including you know merlin you know the famous thing and i think one of the greatest articles ever written in a magazine i've got to tell you is jim steinmeier's account of merlin in genie yes i love that and the mascot moth the whole yeah, thing it made me cry that it was like also i think because i related to it so much <laughs> the, pain of, the pain of that process and Jim's such an amazing writer that I honestly, it's just completely worth seeking out that article because it really, I don't think anything has summarized that process better. And, uh, you know, that was an extreme thing. He was obviously doing a musical with a magician, but, you know, it was, uh, that's the thing. I think, I think Ghost was very particular and in the way it was integrated. Um, I was fortunate to get that chance. I mean, I love it. And and people, there was a question about Harry Potter, which you hit. There was a question about ghosts, which you hit. Um, th this has been amazing. I do know when I when I am I seeing a marquee go up and it has your name on it, I I get uh, very very excited because uh, I know I'm going to see something that I, I probably didn't expect. And I do think there is a lesson to draw for magicians. Uh, you know, I'm always preaching that you come up with the idea first and the method second. That that's how all art comes from. Uh, and magicians tend to buy the trick and then figure out how to jam it into their act. And I think oh, your work is a, is a testament to the story is giving you the ideas. He needs to go through a door or this chalk needs to write on itself. And at that point, once you know what has to happen, you come up with a method. But you don't walk into the rehearsal going, I bought this cool card trick. How do we rewrite the script to fit this card trick in? Well, I think it was Devant. You know, David Devant said, you know, give me a plot and I'll find a way to do it. And... <laughs> 
you know, he always says there was that trick, you know, fish spell words, you know, oh, that's an interesting idea, like fish spelling words. <laughs> and he came up with this crazy trick where, you know, the fish that you drop like count uh, letters on counters, like Scrabble tiles into a goldfish bowl. And then the, the fish apparently swam around and the, <laughs> lifted up the tiles that spelled the, the thought of word. You know, what a crazy idea. The educated goldfish, it was called. I mean, that's and, spectacular. You know, <laughs> yeah, but, you know, what a great plot, you know, just it's, it's you just think of a crazy plot and figure out a way to do it. Because even, you know, one of the things I've worked at is if the plot is strong enough, you can almost get away with an with a less good method, you know. Like if people remember this idea, the notion of something, you know, if they if it appeals to them, they're already halfway there with with you on it. And um, you know, I think that's the same with character, like with with Piff. Like people love the idea of Piff the Magic Dragon, so they're already with him. So like either either make your 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 material or your character something that the audience are interested in, you know. Yeah, and also like uh, Steve Cohen, as you mentioned in his is in in his interview, one of the ways you retain an audience is you give them a story to tell, and what better way to give them a story to tell than by have a story? <laughs> uh, oh my God, I saw this guy, and his goldfish could count. Yeah, but if you take like if you take like the Steve Cohen's is a great um, in chart, you know the 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 magic kettle routine, um, but if you actually see it. Like, I mean, not Steve, any version of it, the Paul Daniels version, any version that I've seen. The trick is always better when it's recounted mm. because there's something about it that it improves on the telling of it. Yeah. And I think that's why, you know, the Houdini, you know, the famous like Houdini Vanishing Elephant or Walking Through the Brick Wall, they're things that have, that you can recount them and then people go, oh, really? Did something like Dynamo Walking on the Water? It's like a lot of reputations have been made by illusions that were all those of varying in standard. Like Houdini's Vaging Elephant, in a way, was as Jim Steinmeier writes, it's not that great a trick. Right. <laughs> it was a bit probably to see it, you know, especially in that huge venue. But you know, people talked about it, and it was it was a it was a thing that captured their imagination. So if you can use that utilize. I mean, I'm not an expert in, you know, like Jim has just written hundreds of routines for magicians that are brilliant. And, you know, I've done a few things, but it's, it's interesting, you know, even I, I love like things like the, the egg trick, but, you know, the, I'm not a big fan of the egg bag. I'd say actually that that's one I won't go on to that, but, <laughs> it, 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 but I can see why it's a good trick because an egg is interesting because you know, it's fragile, you know, it can break. It, it's more interesting than a billiard ball inherently. But if you take it back to 1910 when they were doing, you know, the eggs, you know, the, piling up the eggs and the eggs were probably really precious. Like you, you probably didn't, you didn't just go to your supermarket and get them. You'd have to probably go and find them. And you got to think about, and that's why tricks don't necessarily automatically relate to modern day because an egg back then is not the same as an egg now in the right. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think uh, as we wrap up, you know, it reminds me of a, a, a story that Jim Steinemeyer wrote up in uh, Hiding the Elephant. So it's like a perfect segue. Um, but he talked about uh, John Neville Maskelyne, um, who had a show about aliens and he spent a lot of time making sure it looked perfect and the wires were thin and fine. Uh, and you really believed an alien saucer was landing. I think the show is The Coming Race. And the show closed early because its competition was Peter Pan. 
Um, and even though you could see the thick cords that were holding up Peter Pan as he flew around, uh, it didn't matter because the audience was transported. And it feels like you have found the middle ground where, because an audience would like to believe and like to get and like to see something really fly. And you managed to match the power of the story with the power of the magic. And I feel like it's taken a, a while to find the person who could combine masculine and Barry together, but uh, it feels like you're at that perfect uh, intersection. Well, I, I think it does depend on the story, you know, and um, as promised, by the way, I, that's the program. Nice. Uh, uh, masculine's first show at St. George's Hall. Um, you know, I suspect also because that, um, that very strange story just didn't appeal to people as much. And Barry was a known playwright appearing at the Duke of York, a proper theater. And of course that, that play was a, was a classic still performed today. And maybe it was just a, a much better story, you know, and maybe the magic element of it was kind of irrelevant. The, the idea of a boy flying was, was exciting and the audience were investing their imagination in that. And, I can't imagine that as well as The Coming Race was written, I just can't imagine it was written as well as as Peter Pan as a structure. Right. Let's face it, Peter Pan is a very sad, it's about loss and it, and it appeals to people on a very subliminal deep way. You know, it's an extremely painful story. And um, although it's fun and it has that adventure, it's got real humanity in it. And I suspect The Coming Race was this, special effects wonder that just didn't appeal to people and that they didn't relate to it. And, you know, and it also wasn't in a respected West End theatre. So I think there's lots to it. Um, but I, and I do think that I'm only ever as good as the story. And that there's something like the unmasking an invisible man or even walking through the door and ghost. You've got to think how it's the plot that's driving that moment. And if I get the plot driving to a point such as the the end of Act One when everyone challenges this man in bandages who he is, and then if you can deliver, then if you can do a great magic thing, it's like multiplies by ten. So I think the story is the multiplier to the effect, and you know I really believe that that's true. So I think it's only as good as the story if you can then do a great job on top of it, then you then it's a winner. Uh, that's a, a per perfect answer. I love that. Um, and by the way, uh, you want to create a fellowship from the Magic Castle, the Academy of Magical Arts, and a fellow uh, winner, the one who won this year, Angela Carbone, said Paul excels at what he does, and the shows will be a lesser experience without his work. Uh, thank you for that, Angelo. Uh, that is very true. Uh, our final question, um, the question we end every interview with, and I say we, but it, it's me. Uh, <laughs> but uh, there are a lot of young performers who watch this, young entertainers. Uh, if you could give them uh, some advice, and you've already given them a ton of incredible advice, um, but what would you tell those young entertainers who are just starting out in their careers? Well, are you talking about young entertainers or young magicians? Well, I, mean, usually uh, I, I start with young magicians, but you can broaden it out to young entertainers. It's totally yeah. up to you. Well, I, I think it's just um, don't ever dismiss any area of the arts as far as like, always, if somebody says, do you want to come to this concert? Or do you want to see this play? Or do you want to see this musical? Don't say oh, I don't like musicals, or I don't like da da da, or, you know, <laughs> go out and see stuff, because you learn, and you learn you learn from things that you don't like as well. And if you don't like something, then try and figure out why you don't like it. Um, so I guess that's one piece of advice I would give. And, and also I think, um, yeah, just 
just find enjoyment in it at all, at all levels and go into it to enjoy it and not necessarily to be a big superstar or you know whatever if you, you've got it you've got to you've got to enjoy it because those those other things and the breaks and the possibilities you can absolutely work towards them but you, but they they aren't necessarily the goal like if i if i think of all the stuff I've, I've been so fortunate especially at a time like this in covid but some of the smaller things i did that weren't that well paid that weren't even known about none of the stuff we talked about today have been some of the greatest moments as well uh really just wonderful things so um but i think yeah just uh just try different things look always even art like go to art museums and, and art, you know especially for magic like the stuff that goes on in galleries you know you just see these incredible things that you go wow this would be you know blow the magic audience away if they ever stepped into an art gallery <laughs> you yeah. know be open and don't dismiss things uh, no, that, that's perfect and uh, i i do think you are a superstar i uh am so thrilled to have had you on the show thank you so so much uh, if you'd like to follow Paul, uh, go to Instagram, Keeve, uh, K-I-E-V-E, Paul. Uh, that's his Instagram, stagedelusion.com. Pick up a copy of his book, Hocus Pocus, A Tale of Magnificent Magicians, uh, with a forward by Daniel Radcliffe, Harry Potter himself. Paul, thank you so, so much. I really appreciate it. Stay safe thank and stay you. well, and uh, hope to get to chat with you again soon. Great to chat to you. Have a good so much. Paul, everybody. Oh my God. That was an incredible interview. He is such an incredible uh, performer and thinker and it's truly an honor uh, to have him on the show. I uh, I hope you enjoyed that. I imagine you enjoyed that. How could you not enjoy that? Uh, this show is every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. You can join the IBM magician.org slash join dash the dash IBM slash join. You can download this as a podcast, whobooksthat.com. Follow me on the Twitter, Instagram, at Harrison Comedy. There's a new episode next week. It's the day after the uh, election day. If you're in the U.S., vote, 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 vote. Um, make sure you have a plan and and vote if you're in the U.S. Um, exercise your right. Uh, vote. Uh, go, go to the – mail it in. Go to the place. Uh, be safe, um, but vote. Uh, so yeah, thank you guys so much for tuning in. Uh, huge thanks to Paul, to Matthew, uh, and to Mario the Maker, MarioTheMagician.com slash shop as well. Uh, thanks so much for watching. This has been uh, such a fun episode of Who Books That? And here's the theme song that I'm definitely not just singing in the background while this animation plays. Who Books That? With Harrison Greenbaum singing a theme song with Harrison Greenbaum presented by the IBM. 